Well, good morning. There's a story about a, a guy who went to his doctor for his annual checkup. And as part of the exam, he looked into his eyes and, and he saw that he had some, uh, some major astigmatism. And he said, uh, you know, you need you really need to go to your optometrist and, and have your eyes checked out um, because I, you're, you're half blind, dude. And so the guy took his doctor's advice and he, he called his optometrist's office. He got an appointment set up and he went in and on the appointed day. And, and he sat down, and you know, you know the routine, you've been to the eye doctor, and he, he sat down, and he took off his glasses, and he, he stared at the eye chart at the back of the room. And, and this guy's eyesight was really pretty bad. It had gotten worse, but he didn't really want to admit that he had vision problems, that he needed uh, better glasses. So he decided to try to fake his way through the, the eye exam. And you can kind of sort of pull this off. You can kind of squint and make out, is that a D or is that a O or, you know, is that sort of thing. And so the, the, he began with the top line. Can you read the top letter? Yeah, it's an A. Next line, uh, C, Y, Z. Next line, it's an R, N, S, V, V. Yes, it's a V. Last line, J, M, B, no, 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 O-S. And, and the doc says, okay, you can put your glasses back on. And the guy asks, well, how did I do, doc? And he says, well, pretty good, except for the fact this chart contains numbers, not letters. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes we just aren't willing to admit or to accept that we have problems with our vision, the way that we view things. You know, today we're continuing the sermon series we kicked off uh, back in January entitled 2020 Vision. And, and the main premise behind this series is that we all have blind spots. We all have stigmatisms. We have these blinders or vision, vision problems that keep us from seeing things the way that God wants us to see them. You know, from viewing things the way that God views them, from valuing the things that God values, whether that's other people, things in the world, ourselves, uh, his son, Christ, whatever it is that we, we, we need spiritual vision correction, so to speak. Because the truth is how we view life defines life. How we see and define life determines our destiny, doesn't it? Our perspective on life, our view on life will determine how we invest our time, how we spend our money, how we use our talents, the sort of job that we pursue, the way we use our time, and the way we nurture and value relationships. You know, I think one of the best ways to get to know somebody else and to begin to understand what makes them tick is to kind of get to this question, right? How do you see life? In other words, what kind of what's their worldview? What are the things that they look at and value? How they see life? And when you, if you ask that sort of question, you get all sorts of answers. Um, and it's usually some sort of metaphor. Um, I've heard people say life is like a circus or a minefield or a, a roller coaster up and down with moments of thrill and moments where your stomach just kind of comes up into your throat. A puzzle, a symphony, a dance. Some say it's like a carousel. You know, you go up and down while going around and around and around. Some say life is a mystery and you spend your whole life trying to figure out what is the point of life. Samuel Elliott Morrison, who was a historian of Harvard University in the 1940s and 50s, one said that life is like a, a card game that you have to play the hand that you were dealt. So if I ask you this morning how you see your life, what image comes to your mind? Because that image, that metaphor, it will determine your expectations, your values, your goals, and your priorities and actions. So, for example, 
Let's say you said, well, Doug, I see life as an adventure, as a party. Well, then your primary value will be to have fun, to seek thrills. If you say, well, I see life as a race, then it's going to be about speed and and efficiency and and training and self-discipline. If you see life as a, as a game or as a competition, you're going to value winning. I've got to beat the other guy, other guy, keep up with the Joneses, but get ahead of the Joneses. The great Christian writer G.K. Chesterton was once asked what were the most significant books that he had read besides the Bible. And he said, Homer's Iliad because life is a battle and Homer's Odyssey because life is a, is a journey. So what is your, your view of life? What is your vision of life? One of the main reasons that God gives us the scriptures is so that we can have our vision corrected. So we can learn to see how he views life and then to encourage us to adjust our vision to see it the same way that he does. So in Matthew 16, 21, we're given a story where Jesus tells us how he views life. And how he views the lives of those who claim to be his disciples. Let's take a look again, beginning at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And so we see here that, that, that God's view on life, Jesus' view on his own life, was that he had to go to Jerusalem. That he had to suffer, he had to die, that he had to be resurrected. Now, the word that's used here for suffer is the Greek word for passion. And in verse 21, Jesus describes, begins to describe for the disciples this, the passion of the Christ, which involved pain and torture on a Roman cross. So, so Jesus is saying, my life purpose, I'm called to go to the cross. Now, the disciples didn't know this at the moment, but Christ's suffering, as we can see in the scriptures, Christ's mission was to die, to suffer and die for the sins of the world. You know, he's, when, when he first comes on the scene and John the Baptist sees him and before Peter and the other disciples decide to follow him, what is, what, remember what John the Baptist says? He says, look, it's the Lamb of God. So, so Jesus understands his mission is to, to come and to provide atonement for sin. Reconciliation is possible because of his death for sin. And so Matthew uses this word must. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. And he must be killed on a cross. Now, the fact that Jesus Christ would die for men and women and children like you and me, well, that's rooted in the reality of God's vision of us. God sees us through the eyes of love. He he sees our sin. He sees our flaws, our, our faults, our foibles. He sees all that. But God's vision of us is viewed in love, even when we're at our very worst. The Apostle Paul says as much in Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. On January 25th, 1993, a woman named Carla Adenahy died. You probably don't recognize that name. Um, Carla did not have to die. She was just 28 years old. A few months before her death, she had discovered that she was pregnant. And then she went into the doctor for a, just a kind of a normal checkup. And they discovered she had a rare form of cancer. 
And the doctor said that they could do a special surgery and do chemotherapy. If they did it right away, they could save her life. But she would have to, she'd have to have the baby aborted. And Carla had a, had a commitment to nurture that life. And she refused the divorce and the surgery and the chemotherapy. And six months later, she slipped into a coma. And when she did, the doctors took the baby boy by C-section. And he was just 23 ounces. And she died eight hours later. And when her, her boy, Stefano, when he grew up, do you think he understood the sacrifice that his mother made? Do you think he realized that she died so that he could live, that she gave her life out of love for him so that he could live? What we see in life, our vision for life, determines what we believe and what we value and how we act. And Jesus is very clear here, sees his life as one of sacrifice and of service and of love on the behalf of others, so that all could be saved. That's Jesus' vision of his life. But at the moment, at least at this moment, in this passage, Peter does not share that vision. It's pretty clear. He says, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Perish the thought, Lord. This shall never happen to you. So Peter's view on life is Jesus cannot suffer Because I have a different vision for his life. And it involves me and what I think I need and what I what I want. You see, in in Jesus day, disciples, this is a pretty rare thing. Disciples didn't rebuke their rabbis, especially not in public. But Peter does this because his vision of Jesus life does not match up with Jesus own vision of his life. Now. Peter obviously cared about Jesus. He had given his life to follow Jesus. They were, they were friends. Peter walked around and admired and respected Jesus. He had never met anyone like him. So, of course, he didn't want Jesus to suffer and, and, and to, to be killed. But along with that, he has a different vision. The Messiah is to come and to conquer and to rule and, and to free them from Roman oppression and to make their lives better. So they could have freedom and health and prosperity and freedom of movement, all these things. Suffering was not supposed to be a part of the equation here. He can't even imagine this is a possibility. Now, I'm a a history buff. I was a history major in college. I like to read uh, non-fiction history. Uh, I have a book on my shelf. Well, it's actually on, I think, somewhere in Paul's house. I loaned it to him to read. So I hope I get it back. Um, But it's about Ferdinand Magellan's uh, circumnavigation of the globe. First man to kind of sail all the way around the globe. Uh, And then there's a story about um, the journey. On October 25th, 1520, they were sailing around the the tip of Argentina. It was very difficult to do, but they were sailing around through the straits called Tuer del Fuego, which means land of fire. And as they were sailing along, they, they noticed along the shore these huge fires. And the natives would build these huge fires when it was cold. Um... To, 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 keep, to keep themselves warm and to light the area. But even though these ships were just a few hundred feet from the shoreline, the natives paid no attention at all to them because they'd never seen anything like this. So they could not perceive the possibility of what they were. They thought they were a mirage. Well, Peter cannot conceive of the Messiah suffering. And so, in essence, what he's trying to communicate to Jesus is 
don't talk about this stuff. It's bad for morale. It's, you're the son of God. You're the lamb of God. You're, you come to, to save us and to, to bless us and to give us joy and, and a long life of peace and prosperity and freedom and, and national glory. Suffering is not supposed to be a part of what you're doing here. That was, that was Peter's view, his vision of what life was supposed to be like with the Messiah. And Jesus rejects that out of hand. In fact, Jesus has heard this before. Back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins his public ministry. He goes into the desert. Remember this? He, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. He's girding himself. He's strengthening. He's communing with, connecting with his father deeply because he knows what's going to be ahead of him. And so he's in the desert and, and, and Satan thinks this is an opportune time to strike at him and to, to nip this in the bud. So Satan comes to him and remember what he does? He tempts Jesus. He tries it three different times. He says, you're the son of God. Why go hungry? You've been fasting. You've got to be starving. Turn these stones into bread. Feed yourself, the whole world. Show how relevant you are, how much they need you, what you can do. That doesn't work. Satan comes back. If you're the son of God, as you say you are, throw yourself down from the temple of God. God will send his angels to protect you. You won't get hurt. It'll be spectacular. People will be so impressed. Jesus says no. And then the third time he comes, you're the Messiah. You came for a kingdom, a people and a nation. I'll give it all to you. You'll get all this power, all this prestige without the pain, without the cross. Just bow down and worship me. In his wonderful little book, in the name of Jesus, Henri Nouwen wrote this about this interaction. He says, Jesus' first temptation was to be relevant by turning stones into bread. His second temptation was precisely the temptation to do something spectacular. But Jesus refuses to be a stuntman. He says, we all know what the third temptation of Jesus was. It was the temptation of power. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. What makes the temptation of power so hard to resist? Maybe it's because power offers an easy substitute for the hard work of sacrifice and of service and of love. It's a lot easier to control somebody than to self-sacrificially love them, isn't it? And the history of the church in the world there's a lot of wonderful, powerful, redemptive, miraculous stories. Wonderful things have happened. But there's also been some episodes and some chapters where the people of God have been tempted to choose power over love and control over the cross. So back to Jesus, Peter. Jesus sees Peter's statement for what it is. It's another temptation from the devil. He's heard this before. And so he responds, get out of my sight, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but merely the things of humankind. And so God's view on life, his vision for life must supplant our human view, our human vision for life. Now, you remember what happens right before this passage? There's another dialogue between um, Peter and Jesus. And it goes a lot better for Peter in this dialogue. Peter, uh, Jesus asks the disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the chosen one. Jesus says, you've nailed it. You've aced it. You're going to be blessed because of this. I'm going to, you're my rock, and I'm going to build the church upon, upon you and this statement of, of faith and who I am. 
And right afterwards in Matthew, we see Jesus, or Peter fail this when he tells Jesus, no, don't talk about suffering. Don't talk about sacrifice, about giving your life up. Don't, don't do this, Jesus. And so in the, the earlier passage, Jesus calls him blessed and a rock. And now Jesus says, calls him Satan and that he's a stumbling block and that he can't see what is the most important to God and that he's viewing things through his own eyes. And Jesus rebukes him severely to get his attention. Remember the last time you were severely rebuked? Um, I'm sure it's happened sometimes in your life. Maybe it's been a spouse or a friend, a boss, a co-worker, somebody who, who says, you know, you're, you're, you're missing the mark here. This is not who you are. This is not who you want to be. And it hurts, right? But they do it out of love because they care for you. And they want you to know this is a serious thing. You've got to deal with this. Well, that's what Jesus does here. And it's really, to my knowledge, it's the harshest thing Jesus says to one of his disciples. I mean, he called him Satan, right? I mean, come on, that's pretty harsh. Uh, But Jesus wants Peter to understand. He wants us to understand that how we view life, how we view what he came to do and what he wants to do in us and for us and what we're called to do determines what we believe and how we act in the fruit of our life. You know, I'm fearful that many people sometimes in our world have kind of been told or bought into this idea that this false idea that following Jesus is pretty much about us, that he came to make our lives better, that he came to make us healthier, wealthier and wise. Uh, But then something bad happens. And if you have that worldview, it can rock your world. Maybe it's cancer or a layoff or somebody gets in a serious accident or a child gets sick. God forbid they die or disaster or an act of terror, and we're left wondering if our Heavenly Father really loves us because we've kind of bought into this idea that it's about us, that Jesus came to make our lives better. And that suffering, that's just, that, that, that really shouldn't be part of the equation. But what if, what if we raised our children that way or parented our kids that way? Or what if somebody came to your kids Say they're they're just at an age where their their brains are forming. They're beginning to make their decisions about what's true and what isn't, and what how what life works, and about God. And say somebody came to your kids and said, "You know, your parents they love you so much. Your mom and dad they love you. You're the apple of their eye. Uh, everything revolves around you." And and and, then, and this person said to your kids, um, "And because they love you so much, they will never discipline you. Uh, you'll never have to go through any pain." Uh, They'll make sure you don't have to go to the dentist or eat peas or pull weeds or do your homework or say you're sorry to your brother or sister or or clean your room or make your bed. And whatever you want when you go to the store, they're going to give it to you because just name it and claim it and they'll give it to you because all they, they, they have is yours and they love you. If somebody told your kids that, you would not be very happy because you know that that sort of thinking, those sort of lies, that will destroy them. It doesn't work that way. It's not for their own good. And so you can see why Peter's comments caused Jesus so much frustration and anger here because because Christ without suffering, Christ without sacrifice, Christ without the cross is not Christ. That's the Antichrist. This false idea, Messiah of our own minds and culture. How we see life determines what we believe, what we value, and how we act. 
And then finally, Jesus turns to the rest of the disciples. And he says this in verse 23. If anyone would come after me, he must first deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for a person if they gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? Or what can a person give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. In other words, God's view and vision for life must be the view and vision for life that we as his followers have. If we want to be a Christ follower, we have to see life as he sees it and live life as he lived it. It's pretty obvious. And as a Christ follower, life is a means to serving others and sacrificing for others in order to do God's will. And in the process, we're told that when we give, this, give our life up in sacrifice and service, that we gain something incredible. We gain life and meaning and purpose, both here but also for eternity. Which is pretty much the complete opposite of what we are told in our culture here in America, right? We're told to grab the brass ring, to go for the gusto, to consume all we can, to squeeze everything we can out of life. And yet sometimes I wonder how much happiness has been found for people in our society who live that way. There was an article in the Wall Street um, Journal about uh, entitled Rich, Healthy, and Miserable. It was based on a survey some sociologists did um, to determine if making more money really make people more happy. They discovered that when a person would get a raise, it did make them feel better for a while. And then almost everyone began to spend up to the level of that increase. And it wasn't long before they began to feel the same way again, strapped, under pressure, uptight, a little unhappy. And the article was fascinating because at the end, the author made three suggestions for finding happiness. And two of them were give more money away and invest your time serving other people. How we see life determines what we believe and how we'll live And that's why Jesus tells you and me to lose our lives for his sake, because then we'll find it. You know, one of my favorite Seinfeld episodes is the episode where George Costanza, of course, George is is Jerry's uh, one of his best friends. He's he's pretty self-centered, selfish, kind of neurotic kind of guy. Um, And he comes into the coffee shop where they would often meet. And he tells Jerry and Elaine, another one of their friends, life is just not working for me. He says, my entire life has turned out to be the exact opposite of what I, I wanted. And they talk about this. And Jerry says, why, why don't you try something? Do the opposite of everything you feel. And he says, well, I'll try that. And to everyone's surprise, George begins to do that. He begins to tell the truth instead of lying. He begins to treat women with respect instead of objects of sexual desire. He starts to love his parents instead of disrespecting them all the time. He starts to show self-control instead of going to a rage every time he's behind the wheel. And lo and behold, he gets a new job, a new girlfriend, a better relationship with his family. He gives up his old life. He gets a new life. Now, it doesn't last. I mean, it's George Costanza, right? But and it's just a TV show. It's kind of silly. It's about nothing. But what Jesus says here is true for us all. If we want to be a Christ follower, we have to 
give up the way we're doing life and do life the way that he did it. We have to see life as he sees it and live life as he lived it, which was service and sacrifice and love. I want to close in just a second with two questions. Uh, I saw these, uh, I, there's a couple of Twitter feeds that I follow, uh, and one of them is, it, it, there's this question popped up. It's by a guy named Sam Alberry. There's two questions about what it means to be a disciple. And I'm going to encourage you to kind of, kind of take these home with you, uh, reflect on them, think about them. Um, I, I think if you do, it's going to, there's going to be some stuff revealed, uh, and, 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 and God will use them to do something in you. The first one is, what does God love that I'm tempted to hate? And what does God hate that I'm tempted to love? Uh, the second one is, what does God want me to let go of that I'm tempted to grip onto? And what does God want me to grip onto that I'm tempted to let go of? Uh, when I first read those questions, they began to rock me quite a bit, and I'm still wrestling with them, but I, I do think that if we, if we really wrestle with those questions and allow God's Spirit to speak to us and try to answer those questions in view of Scripture, that we'll have a better understanding of what it means to take up our cross, to die to ourselves, and, and to follow Jesus. So I, I just want to simply close with, with the last, uh, with the, with the first thing I asked you. How do you view life? What is your vision of life? Is it a race or a battle, a competition? Is it a roller coaster? Is it an adventure? Or do you see life, your vision for life, is it an opportunity to serve God, to love others, to follow Jesus' example, to sacrifice and to serve out of love for the sake of others? Because Jesus' words to the disciples and to Peter which when he first spoke them have not changed. It's the same call to you and me. It's come, take up your cross, die to yourself, live your life for God and others, take your cross up, follow me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. And we thank you that Jesus um, did not think about himself but he thought about us when he was tempted to set aside his mission and the vision uh, that he was given for life, Lord, he, he stuck to it. And out of love, he allowed himself to be, uh, suffer, to, to be tortured, to suffer, and to be killed on a cross. Uh, Lord, he did that all for us. And Lord, he asks the same of us, which can be very daunting and, and, and uncomfortable and something we really don't want to do. I mean, who wants to die to themselves? Who wants to, to do that, Lord? But Lord, paradoxically, we find life when we do so. We find meaning and purpose. Uh, we find um, just life both now and forever. And so, Lord, help us to be people who Keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And to each day make choices to take up the cross, to look at you, to look at others, and to love, and to serve, and to sacrifice. 
through your Spirit, Lord. Help us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.